Panizzi is known as the Asphalt Ace, the terror on tarmac. His is the name to fear, Peugeot's sealed surface specialist. All this, even when he came to rallying late. I waiting uh, 24 years to start for my first uh, rally. And, uh, and I, I did the, only the tarmac rally during 10 years and more. And welcome to the Rally DNA podcast, a deep dive into the mutiae of world rallying and rally culture. This week we'll be discussing a topic sure to be close to the heart of any rally fan of a certain increasingly ripe vintage, the tarmac specialist and its evolutionary offshoot, the WRC super sub. The tarmac ace, a breed of driver at its most prominent and successful in the mid to late 90s, is a topic both myself and my co-host Killian Cronin hold in high regard, hence our excitement at the prospect of recording today's episode. Welcome once more, Colleen. How are you doing? Doing great. Excited at the prospect of uh, one of my favourite rallying subjects from an era where I was really having my formative rallying teeth cut watching footage of these cars on the telly at the turn of the millennium. So, yeah. Penizzi Donuts. That's it. <laughs> um, as the name suggests, tarmac specialists were drivers who'd honed their skills on asphalt rallies, often at the expense of other looser surfaces. As such, they tended to be parachuted into the lineup of the Gibbon Works, Works team, often lead up to classic sealed surface tests like the Tour de Course, San Remo and Catalunya. The era of the tarmac specialist was brief. It reached its apogee in the late 90s with drivers like Gilles Pinizzi and Felipe Bugalski, both of whom famously set Park Fermi tongues wagging with their emphatic sealed surface performances in 1998 and 1999. But the era was short-lived. And within a handful of seasons, these same drivers, and with it the specialisation they espouse, had faded from prominence. To discuss the rise and fall of the tarmac ace, we're fortunate enough to have with us a guest who had a ringside seat for both the F2 era and the WRC in its two-litre millennial pomp, John Desborough. John, thank you very much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure, and after an introduction like that, I hope I can do you guys. I hope I can do you guys justice. <laughs> and, um, and listening to that introduction, I, I said, uh, the memory of um, the, the fantastic flying Hervé brothers doing their donut in 2002 underneath the uh, hairpin at the Espinelva, the bridge at the Espinelva's hairpin came back, uh, came back into my mind. So thank you for giving me that nostalgia trip. Hopefully we can <laughs> deliver a few more. <laughs> That's our USP. Yeah. So, John, you were, you know, I pointed out there, this is kind of my, my formative, you know, development watching rallying on telly back then or WRC events really back then. And you, you're one of the voices, you know, coming over the airwaves from then. So you should be well positioned now to to help us out and drop a few more nostalgia trips and anecdotes from from that time. Yeah, by all means, ask me a very hard and detailed question and I'll be I'll be very glad to answer it. <laughs> we'll hear your keyboard clicking before you answer, just to double check. I've got some old dusty books up here that Martin Holmes uh, wrote. I'm sure he's got the answers in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I think Martin's probably the genesis of most of my innate, ingrained rally knowledge anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to put it all into context... Um, when I got involved with the Channel 4 years, my uh, one of my earliest memories is the Subaru car launch in the hotel in uh, Monte Carlo, 
And it was the Wednesday before the very first Friday that Channel 4 was going to do that show that was going to be new in so many different ways. It had never been done before. And the press officer for Subaru came up to me, um, whose name was Adrian Atkinson. And he whispered to me before the whole sort of shindig started. He said, Desborough, listen, my mother-in-law doesn't know what a differential is, OK? Just remember that. Just remember that, will you, while you're doing your show. And I said to him, she's in good hands, because I don't know what a differential is either. <laughs> and I've always continued on that basis. Wise <laughs> oh, words. Dear. Right. I guess the logical start point is to sort of go back to the dawn of it all uh, in, in the early 90s and um, the, the sort of birth of F2 um, in 92 and early 1993 um, when Patrick Landon, who is uh, Renault's uh, chief of motorsport, first floated the idea to the FIA that there could be a new uh, a new seal, surf, seal uh, a two-wheel drive class of rally car that was more advantageous to French car makers. Um <laughs> Which, which was already quite a sort of a feat of skullduggery, if you ask me. And I'm sure there wasn't anything, you know, uh, there wasn't any sort of nationalist feeling going on between that. Do you think he bumped into a schoolboy Seb Loeb in his shorts who said, well, I'm going to stop being an acrobat, I'm going to drive cars. And he thought, <laughs> oh, my God, this is the most talented rally driver our age. I've got to get a car for him. And the rest is history. Picked up the phone to Max Mosley straight away. He, he, yeah, he was FISA. It was the FISA then, wasn't it? Yeah, so F yeah, Max yeah. Mosley was FISA president at the time, yeah. Just met this young lad. Uh, he was doing some backflips, but he said he fancied driving a rally car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you can't call it F1. you got to come up with another name. Oh, we call it F2. <laughs> the rest is history. Oh, dear. Um, and yes, so it's fascinating origin. I mean, do, what do you remember, John, of that of that period? Um, again, I remember the established names of uh, the World Rally Championship in the late nineties being monumentally fed up <laughs> that anybody should come along and devise anything that should get in the way of what they were doing, that should steal the cameras and the hearts of uh, people who are watching it. And uh, have the cheek to go out there and, you know, beat my Subaru and the man that I'm paying about $3 million a year to, to win <laughs> rallies. And nobody's heard of that bloke over there in his kit car. Um, but when you think about it, it was what everybody now talks about, I suppose, the, the bottom of the talent ladder. Everybody talks about staircases of, uh, you know, uh, ladders and staircases of talent. And um, having... Uh, had a little look on some of the uh, online content of the early 90s rallying, just to refresh my memory, which, of course, uh, my, my uh, knowledge of all this is spectacular. Um, I then, you know, happened across all these guys like Hazus Puris and Philippe Bogalski, who, of course, uh, as soon as they'd kind of created, shown us the possibility of what could happen, disappeared. Um, and, you know, they, they, the whole show that they created the whole thing that they created was was taken over and they were never really heard of again well i guess partly the, the that was purely the fact that because of the the amount of manufacturing money that had been sort of poured into f2 uh, as a category was then either you know, dissipated in the case of citroen because they moved up the line to wrc or you know peugeot in that case as well and and mm. then you know you either sank or swam as a panizzi or a hazes purist or a bogalski you know yeah. and, and some were able to develop and and, uh, you know, enhance their skill set, whereas others 
were pure sealed surface aces. Yeah, and with the origins being in France, and what we know about France and, you know, sealed surfaces and great tarmac roads, although, you know, they probably hadn't been to Killarney and Donegal at the time, so God bless them, they, they had they missed out on that bit of uh, tarmac in the time, hadn't they? Uh, they, thought, they thought that was bad. They should try, you know, is it Cod's head on a bad day? Um, so the... Um, the origins of it came from France, and I guess they saw what was going on with uh, the Japanese cars and the domination of Japanese cars and what people were doing, and they just wanted a share of the pie. They just wanted, you know, a piece of the game, if you like. Mm-hmm. And um, they probably had a lot of talent driving around in those small, uh, underpowered cars, and thought, "We need to get them onto the world stage. We need this to progress." Um, and in many ways, that's what the French Federation has done down the years ever since. You know, all those guys that we now know whose names begin with Seb, uh, or are called Seb rather, they've all had a start with you know, the French Motorsport Federation. So they know how to build a ladder of, uh, of talent and they know how to, to usher it to the top. And rightly so, and, and rightly they had the talent. But crucially, the problem, of course, with the manufacturers at the time was that they didn't have in the early 90s a four-wheel drive car that they could homologate and compete at the highest level with the likes of your Escort Cosworths, Impreza 555s and Celicas, which then, of course, led to the development of the Clio Maxi with the OG, perhaps the OG Tarmac specialist showcasing the, the car itself in John Regnati. Yes, and having looked, I mean, look when you look at those names on uh, in records and in books and pictures of them, they they kind of fade into insignificance in a way. Or not quite insignificance, to be disrespectful, but they're not as well known as all the guys that then triumphed in a Group B era, or all the guys who were part of that the rally, the World Rally Cars from '97 onwards. It's almost as if the people that won the battle uh, wrote the history. Of, uh, of of what the sport was, and it, it wasn't those people. They were almost like the pioneers, mm. and the pioneers are always the ones to get forgotten because somebody with more money pushes them out of the way and says, "Right, we'll take it from here, guys." Thank you very much. Um, but it was, all, I suppose, the future was always going to be with the best cars, uh, four wheel drive, um, the the best aerodynamics you could get, the most talented people, and it was always going to be a race to the top. So two-wheel drive was always going to be left behind, but it did give us a lot of the names that uh, he said struggling for those names, apart from Seblo. I mean, who started in front-wheel drive rallying? Probably just about everybody. Um, And that was the beginning of their great careers. Um, Absolutely. Um, and, and I think it's also the fact that no one appreciated, well, except perhaps Renault and Patrick Landon, uh, how much of an advantage they were potentially building into the maxi kit car formula. Certainly back at the start, you know, I mean, there were you could you could you could run. I think uh, your average kit car was about three hundred kilograms less than a, a world rally car. Come the end of the the end of the decade, you could be far wider, different su- suspension geometry, um, and of course pretty much freedom to do what you wanted with an engine uh, as long as the OEM valve sizes were retained. So you could have to higher heaven. And of course, this was in step with, uh, you know, limited slip diffs, really sort of, you know, uh, front wheel drive limited slip diffs either, you know, certainly coming into their own. Um, and no one really paid this much attention, at least outside of France, until 
that they were forced to pay attention later and you know in in the 98 and 99 <laughs> yeah and i have some quotes from 99 that we can maybe, we'll maybe get to when we start to cover corsica in a bit more detail because yeah the tongues were indeed wagging and even like the other advantages i mean apart from the weight the clio maxi was the first rally car to have a sequential gearbox as well uh, there you go in yeah. the nerdiest pub quiz in the is world is that is that the case it was the first one <clears throat> wow and you know again i suppose that there they are pioneering and yet where are where are renault now then they're, they're not part, are they part of the psa group or are they even part of the family and the dna and they no they're not they're not part of stellantis they're still their own uh and semi-state that, but semi-state yeah. owned as well I was going to say they are still partially state-owned, aren't they? That, I mean, I'm sure that had no part to play in 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 Renault's desire to to sort of influence the FAA, and I'm sure it didn't help them in the slightest. Task, <laughs> <laughs> what are you hinting at? We might alienate our three French listeners, and I checked earlier just to be sure how <laughs> many we could alienate. Monsieur Bogansky, Monsieur Loeb, <laughs> someone. French. Somewhere stubbed out a Galois and anger and, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with a Gallic shrug. Yeah, well, poor old poor old Bogalski never got to hear us. Uh, so no. you know, maybe maybe one of the Sebastians and uh, I don't know, Eve Mathon. No. But with listening <laughs> to you there, just list the you know the 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 composition, the makeup of of the kit car, what you could put on it and what you couldn't, uh, what you could get away with, what it did. You know, I was listening to the end, got the end of the, the list that you were reading, and I thought, yeah, fantastic. Let's get on with it. Let's build one now and enter it somewhere. What fun we could have with that. Can you imagine? I mean, there's, yeah. there's a story and there's a film for Netflix right there about these lads that, you know, put a car together like that, went out and challenged them all over again. Um, yeah. And, you know, how foolish of the kind of the big established names in the sport not to know that these things were going to be an awful lot lighter. Um, we're going to wipe the floor with them when it came to their beloved asphalt. Yes. I mean, I suspect part of it is probably because F2 is a class, you know, across the board, which could be, could seem quite pedestrian. You know, if you look at a, an F2 Mark III Golf GTI rally car competing in the British Rally Championship, it's, it's an impressive sounding and going bit of kit, but it's never going to challenge a, a WRC car. So it's only, you know, the, the French stuff that truly developed this ability to, to humble WRC cars and again purely because the amount of money that was thrown at it and the fact they could specialize so wholeheartedly mm. I mean I guess the, the and also many it. of the world rally championship events were tarmac back then because that would have dictated the chances of those guys success how far they were going to go how many they were possibly going to win they must have looked at the season and said you know by then we could be leading a championship which brings lots of eyeballs and gives you the chance to sit in front of the you know, the managing director of a company and say, we're doing great, we're leading the championship. But eventually you knew it, they would disappear as soon as they got onto any kind of gravel mm. or, you know, it went to went to Sweden in the snow. I mean, that was never going to be a winner, was it? So mm. I suppose all those kind of judgments were made along the way as well. But um, yeah, the, 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 the cars sound magical. They sound fun. And they're the kind of things that you want to be involved in, not like the enormous beasts um, that would frighten anybody at that level now, were they to have the chance to sit in one of the current WRC cars and, you know, see what, what you just press your foot flat and let the aerodynamics do the rest. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly like, it's still a very exciting, you know, there's still some of the most exciting footage to watch from that era is of these cars, but maybe it's mm. a very much a case of 
the, the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long or something. But what you have to consider is a little particularly, as Jane pointed out, these French cars as well. Like we had plenty of other kit cars as well, like the FIA 2-litre mm. World, FIA World 2-litre Rally Cup, something, something like yeah. that. Uh, it had Snap, a couple of names. Snap, but, never going to fly, was it? No, no, no. It's far too long for a title. But like the likes of Hyundai and, and Seat had these kit cars too. But it was when 1997 comes in, we have the likes of the 306 and the Zara. The Zara is in testing at this point, but the 306 arrives and really starts to show what's kicking off. Mm. And they must have planned, they must have known, they must have had an idea of what it was capable of. They must have tested it on roads and stages where the established manufacturers had been. They knew that the step up on tarmac couldn't be you know, that big they knew where the advantages lay they must have done that kind of basic research and thought we stand a pretty good chance of doing well here but you you ask yourself you know what was what was the future if they were going to enter the f2 class and just muller everybody in sight when they got onto decent tarmac and they could use the skills that they had had honed over the last you know 10 or 15 years growing up in france they must have realized that uh, if they were going to be that successful it was soon going to end and you know if you can't beat it you've got to legislate against it and so um, that's what the fia must have thought and when they brought in the new regulations when when were they when would when we have the production cup and all those the official junior championship and the super 1600 is about two, 2000 2001 something like that yeah, 99, yeah. 2000, <laughs> PWRC and like the Super 1600 really started, it was 2000 for Super 1600, because Bogalski mm-hmm. actually, we're probably skipping ahead, but Bogalski went on to drive a Super 1600 Saxo, which is probably mm-hmm. my favourite Super 1600 in 2000, post his Zara kit car success of 99. Yeah. I suspect it might have been, from an FIA point of view, with the car makers, the French car makers, a, a fairly transactional thing, because although I'm sure the FIA realized deep down that perhaps they were allowing an advantage potentially uh, in the in the years ahead but equally both those both Citroen and Peugeot of course subsequently joined the WRC mm. as full fat works teams and I'm sure it was never laid out as such in as many in, in as starker terms but from an FIA point of view two new big car manufacturers you know mm. joining one after another and for a while you know cohabiting mm. and it certainly added to that apex period of the early 2001 or so when we couldn't move in the wrc for, for oem car makers um, <laughs> cool. they, they were the glory years yeah. Mm. yeah they must have known what they were starting and they must have realized with the, the combination of the car and the drivers uh you probably didn't need great budgets to run it you didn't need hundreds of thousands of spares and lots of you know uh, technically uh, university educated people to to run them and so it was a very pretty simple operation and in many ways you know the the service park where subaru and uh possibly toyota at this time possibly mitsubishi thought we need to do something about this these guys are coming in and they're making us look like mugs um you know we beat them on the gravel but they've got people that's only are really only known in france and they're coming in here that they might not necessarily be winning but they're on the podium and what are they contributing to the whole gig you know are they, are they paying for any of the promotion on the tv no they're not they're just coming in and making mugs of us and in a way it was genius that they had that somehow psa managed to have peugeot and citroen running alongside for, for a time um, in that they probably decided that they would 
fight against each other and it would be the survival of the fittest you know you don't if you just have one then they'll sit back on their laurels they'll, they'll take it easy but if you have two from the same uh, country and two from the same group then you've got competition and then you've got real competition producing great performances yeah absolutely uh, and i think you know the 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 oem the guys the the group a four-wheel drive guys weren't completely uh, blinkered to this idea quite on. I know Ovi Anderson of Toyota and uh, John Wheeler of Ford were both, you know, in, in 95, 96, could already see that they were, you know, these cars were getting faster on WRC rounds, resented the fact that yeah. the, the Renaults and Persians of this world didn't, they could build a car that was so specialised that, it, you know, it didn't matter if it couldn't see which way a Salika WRC went on Acropolis gravel because, you know, in its natural environment that it inhabited, it was so mm. perfectly adapted, you know. Mm. But in a way, uh, when I think back to the cars that I aspired to, and I'm going to re reveal my true age now, looking through the 80s, the, the car that I had was a Peugeot 205 with the 1.9 engine in it, in that lovely graphite black and those lovely leather seats. Um, and it was quite a dangerous thing in somebody's hands who's incapable like me because it would get, the back would get out on after a rainy night on the London Road roundabout and you'd have to watch out and it had to go as soon as the family started to come along. But there was that whole pedigree of the hot hatches. So you got Peugeot there, you got that Renault Clear, and a Renault, uh, um, Renault 5 was it, which then mm. turned into a Clear. The Renault 5 Gordini gets away like Houdini. I can still remember the advertising from the 80s. And there was a third one in there, which was the Escort. And if you were a petrol head aspiring to drive, then those were the three cars you had. So it's natural that if you're going to come up with some kind of a rally car and you want someone who is an enthusiast to be involved or you want to create the talent, then that those hot hatches are the places you're going to go to. And 10 years later, the, the derivations, the, the cars that they have become are still there being competed in. I mean, I completely forgotten about that um, Peugeot 306 Maxi. In fact, it wasn't even on my radar until I looked at it <clears throat> as part of my research for this evening, gentlemen, <laughs> and found Vicky Butler Henderson sliding around some airfield there, you know, talking to camera while she's got opposite lock on um, and saying, well, they took out the CD player and uh, they took out the air conditioning and they took out the central locking. And I thought, yeah, and that's why nobody bought the thing because <laughs> with the essentials of, you know, a 90s car. But it was a rally car. It was a rally <laughs> car. And at, at that time, you know, what, what was rallying in the World Rally Championship? Colin McRae was just appearing for us up here in this part of the world. And, uh, well, he was in a Subaru. Ah, we'll go and get one of those. That's the car I had, um, which was so popular apparently in the late nineties that um, it was the Ram Raiders car of choice. Did you hear about that? Did you read about that one? If you it wanted sees the, Ram the Raiders, button from the Escort Cosy, <laughs> yeah, if you yeah. wanted to go down to the the um, the shopping estate, you know, and Ram Raid Curries and go and get yourself a free compact stereo as they were in those days then you took a Subaru Impreza and the police cottoned on to that so they went and bought a load of Subaru Imprezas to go and catch the bad guys who were getting away having raided the Curry shop down it probably wasn't known as Curry's in the 90s but you get the picture was that what you were doing before the Channel 4 game <laughs> <laughs> no before I stepped into um Richard Burns's Subaru in 1999 which I think was that car that particular Subaru I hadn't really known what the World Rally Championship was but that sitting in Robert Reed's seat going around Cornbury Park 
when I was at Sky News, that was a life changer because up until then, um, I'd spent my time trying to convince them to get interested in Formula One because I thought that was the place to be with all those, you know, mantles and hills and coulthards floating around. That was that was a place to get in. There'd be some good stories there. But once I'd sat in a Subaru, four-wheel drive Subaru, I, sorry, that my life changed. <laughs> my priorities in life changed. My car desires changed. I no longer wanted that Peugeot 205 anymore because, you know, four-wheel drive was what it was. Boxer engines, whatever the hell they were, that's the thing. <laughs> You've got to have those. It's got to have STI on it. It'll be a grey import. So <laughs> at that point, that's that talk. I, I don't know how they did it. I mean, I remember David Richard once saying to me, um, the boss of Subaru or possibly STI said to me once, David, you realise that 10 years ago, before we went rallying, I just produced boring agricultural equipment and, uh, and tractors. And now apparently I produced the sexiest car on the planet, which was the blue one with the gold wheels. Um, and there was a whole generation of people that just got into them and, you know, the Evos. And they probably, even in those days when petrol was cheap, they met up down the petrol station because that's where they all were all the time. Um, <laughs> Having had two Subarus, you visited one of those petrol stations quite a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to go back a little bit, sorry, before you you were really introduced into this this muddy world. So 1997, Jamie, you'd say, is really where we can draw the line at where the real era of the Tarmac Specialist kicks off in full with the arrival of the Panizzi brothers in that 306 Maxi that, that John didn't, uh, didn't have on his radar. <laughs> I, th I think it also helps that that's when the uh, the first year when the the, the much hated and maligned um, uh, rotation system was kicked to the curb, which meant that you know these any tarmac round still on the championship would would count and would there would therefore be you know would be would would, would get up the noses of any all wheel drive cars competing. Mm -hmm. You know, before that, you you see uh, you know McGann Maxis and uh, and Cleo Maxis giving good accounts of themselves on you know the Monty and and the Tour de Course when it was uh, wasn't when it wasn't part of the uh, the WRC, but I, you know it didn't didn't cause as much of a stink. But as you say, yeah, ninety seven. 306 Maxi, McGann Maxi. And it was a good looking car and a good performing car. And Vicky Butler Henderson, she loved it. So if she likes it, then, you know, you know, it's got to be a good car. But, but it had come after that 205. And, you know, that 205 was one of those hot hatches. And you're only really going to fall in love with one of those Peugeots, aren't you? Or are you going to trade one in and go up to your Maxi? But the, the whole, how much was a Maxi? I mean, where did it sit in the marketplace? And, and who, who were the guys that, that, that went for it and that wanted to drive it? And, um, and how much success did they have with it? And why the hell was I not interested in the 306 Maxi? And why was I uh, coveting a, a Subaru Impreza? What went wrong? Is it me or is it them? <laughs> I don't know, maybe the, the 306 rally, perhaps in, in terms of the road going marketed care, maybe wasn't quite as um, wild enough or, or screamy enough as the other um, care homologation cares that were coming from from Ford and that at the time. But, you know, they gave us the 206 afterwards. Which, I mean, you have also, mm, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say the 206, uh, well, not quite homologation special, but that the bumpered grown bumper 206 that came after the 206 WRC wasn't quite attractive either, was it? 
It is. It's you. The point you make is a good one. It's down to the look of the car as to whether people will go for it. And uh, to hark forward to that Subaru Impreza, the noise that comes from the exhaust tailpipe as well. <laughs> and maybe, you know, Subaru had learned the lesson that a car had as much character, as much of its character was from the sound as from the sight. And I bet a lot of money went into getting the the noise of the of the car as it went by. Correct. A lot of money spent on all those high grade sports cars, getting the noise of the engine just right. Aston Martin probably spent for, a fortune on it, whereas you know Citroen and Peugeot, maybe their priorities were different. Maybe they were after you know people like us. And what were they after? They wanted us to buy the car. They wanted us to get into rallying. They probably thought, well, they're all getting into this rallying thing. They all love their cars. Let's give them a car. And then through rallying, they'll buy the car. Yeah, well, I think that's it with the French manufacturer's approach. It wasn't really to sell a special model as in so much it was to market the whole range and just give more um, mm. more visibility to the, the range of the 306 or the Zara as a whole, which really mm. was, lends itself forward to what came in the WRC rules later when people could enter with, with any car as such it didn't need to have a four-wheel drive turbocharged road going variant in advance so i guess they were probably a bit ahead of the times in some of that absolutely uh, and and the, the the thing you mentioned about price is actually relevant in terms of the 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 kit cars themselves because eventually these things came to be you know uh, cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds very nearly as much if not more than uh, a second-hand impress mm-hmm. 555 or wrc and and if you're an independent team trying to compete in a national championship. So what are you going to choose? Are you going to have the four-wheel drive, slightly second-hand car that can compete across the board? Or are you going to have the, the peaky, ultra-specialised, highly complex, hard-to-run, you know, maxi? Um, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is late on the line. But, uh, but yes, I mean, I think you're right. 97, definitely the 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 first year of it being truly uh, was global in its appeal, Gillian. Mm. But what happened to all of those those F2s and all of those kit cars, all of those 306s? Are they now in private ownership? Lorb has one. Mm. They must be, you know, they must be fun to drive. They must be subject of a great deal of curiosity with people when you, if you turn up and compete with it. Are they, you know, are they welcomed or do you find that the whole game has gone manufacturer crazy that everybody now, for instance, I'm probably even old-fashioned with this, once you'd have an Opel or a Vauxhall Adam or uh, I don't know what else he's run on the British Championship. If you turn up with a 306, what's the reaction, do you think? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't be able to run it these days, I suspect, but um, it, I, I pick the, the world would love it, wouldn't they? But um, only, only a handful were built anyway, and, and they quite rapidly, I think, uh, you know, were, were hustled away into private collections, probably because people realised what they were worth and, and that they were sort of so momentous in terms of what they marked in rallying. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad I saw McGann Maxis competing, you know, in the RAC rally back in the day, even if it wasn't in the in their natural environment. Um, there was a lot more McGann Maxis built compared to like so the 306s and the Zaras, mm-hmm. and, and there was no customer program for those cars considered like, compared to say what ProDrive were doing with Xworks cars. Well, just offloading them to Ireland for the most part, but you know, um, <laughs> the, the retirement home for pro drive works cars in the, in the turn of the century, uh, or the turn of the millennium. But um, so yeah, they're very small numbers, particularly with the Zara and three six. There's a good few McGann's built, and a lot of Clio Maxis built as well. Mm. But but that was more for the specifically for the French national championship for the most mm. part, I would believe. 
who were probably still hooked on tarmac for, for some reason, never got off tarmac really, mm. went through tarmac into championships that included other surfaces. But predominantly, if you were going to start as a kind of whatever the French equivalent is of a, of a clubman rally, you know, where uh, the Sebs uh, started, people like Bogalski probably started. I mean, uh, the Hervé, uh, the Polizzi brothers probably started there and they were putting their own money into the programme in order to get in and get seen. But it was all on tarmac because that's what they were familiar with and where they were, where they were brought up. Um, whereas we started in forests. What does that yeah, say? I mean, in a place where nobody knew you were competing. They didn't want you on the roads. We don't want you on the roads and those things. <laughs> you can jolly well go off to the forests and make a noise in those those escorts of yours and those those Clio's and <laughs> those uh, those Peugeot three or whatever it is with the ra- word rally spelt wrongly. Go to the forests, you know. In France, <laughs> you know, in France, they they must have. Be, they must have thought it was just second nature to close roads and get themselves 100 kilometres or something where people could come out with their cars and, and compete. Yes, I mean, I think Bolgalski is slightly different in this. If you look back at his, he had a few years on the others. Um, and if you look back at his car list, I mean, he he had a, a spell with uh, the Delta de Grali. And I think he wasn't he also driving, Kalina, a Renault 21 quadra at some point a group n there's definitely footage of him in some amazing all-wheel drive saloon on tarmac and gravel which is just patently ill-suited to it but it's all the better for it quite like those 21 quadras actually in a kind of perverted way there's nothing perverted about it man hush hush with your language (laughs) wash your mouth out talking like that Oh, I've just done a quick dash DWRC. So we have Renault 19, 16 valves. Well, Integral is you're correct in that, yeah. Uh, Jeep, Renault 5 GT so. Turbos. There's your Renault 21 quad. 21 quarter. Oh, this is Bugalski. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, he would have been years, the elder statesman of these guys, really. Uh, a Mercedes 190E Cosworth what? as well. Uh, yeah, that's a unusual one. Mm. And it cut his teeth in golfs. Um, so yeah, he, he would have been quite quite a bit older than the other sorts. And then you've the likes of like Delacour, who also kind of arrived onto the scene. And well, you know, he was on the scene already driving, you know, Group A escorts and whatnot. But in '97, he, he picked up a Ford, Ford and Tour de Cars. And Delacour, being French, was already somewhat of a tarmac specialist, mm. but unusual in the other guys, even going beyond this and that. He'd consistently been doing full seasons in WRC, but I think he saw the chance now to to pick up a few more victories. Mm. Uh, I mean, that, that must have been quite a, a brave move. Looking back, we all know it paid off. But but the idea that, you know, from a Delacour's point of view, you'd go from running a, a, an Escort Cosworth in 96, you know, being affected in a works team to taking a punt on this little known front wheel drive project. You know, mm. it, it's it paid off. And I'm sure there was perhaps a, a knowledge of, of, of the, the, the 206 WRC program in the future, which probably mm. played a role in convincing him. But at the mm. time, that must have felt like a big stab in the dark. Yeah, whatever the French is for counterintuitive, it was it, wasn't it? He must have walked around the car and said, uh, no, I, where there was no draft to the, to the other wheels. And they had to say to him, no, sorry, here, it's just, just two-wheel drive here. Uh, Francois, sorry about that, mate, but uh, that, that's all we got. But these are real, this is what the kids are going to be getting into in the next year or two. And in actual fact, they were, were right, weren't they? Except there's this tall bloke called 
Desborough will never ever get into these things, but we don't need to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, but you know, Delacour and Bogaski, if, if they were the kind of the seniors of this team, then you know, behind we've got the fabulous Panizzi brothers and this kid who is probably still doing gymnastics, who's five foot two, God bless him, and still got nine world titles ahead of him. And maybe they thought, okay, so we can take our established French stars who are what were they in their sort of mid to late 20s or something, and we can get them into this program. And we are thinking now seriously at board level that we're going to have a go at getting to the World Championship. But, you know, along comes this guy, Seb Lowe. Um, and I remember meeting him for the first time in Corsica in 2001 when we were doing all the pre-shoot material for the very first Channel 4 rally show. And I, I he didn't win because he was in a kick car, I think, in Corsica that year in 2001. I think, was it Bugalski's? You can look that up on that very good website that we know and love. You know, the one that begins with an E and ends with a C. Uh, I think Bogowski won that one. I don't think it was a poor ass win 2001 in Corsica, was it? You know this. You know, no, Bogowski uh, had an accident in Corsica in 2001. Who won that? I can't remember. I was there for the first couple of days and I shook, I pushed through and I said to him, said, my name is John Desborough. I'm going to be doing the rally coverage of Channel 4. And I got pushed out of the way. <laughs> I got pushed out of the way. And the person who was shoving his way through was a man by the name of David Richards, who wanted to get him and get introduced to this kid, you know, even, even earlier than I could. Um, because I guess he must have seen how the sands were shifting, where people were going, where the money was being invested. Uh, and Subaru did try to hire Loeb um, in two, at the end of 2002 or 2003, I think it might have been. Um, and were prepared to give him an awful lot of money and sent George Donaldson to go and get his, his signature, who, you know, even to this day will tell you that he had everything on the contract bar the actual signature, um, because Seb Loeb, um, I think, said to George, that's an awful... Uh, he said, that's a, that's a lot of money to pay me for a season for a rally or something and he said no Seb that's what we're going to pay you every season for three years if you sign the contract but he took it back to Citroen and said listen those upstarts and ProDrive have offered me five million euros or whatever it was a year and Citroen said well we can't have that we'll we'll give you six million um, and he always credits George Donaldson as the man who gave him a massive pay rise from just being a kind of had a had a potential in the future as and turning him into the unbeatable star that he is. Well, I suppose Seb, more than any of the other guys we've talked, really did owe his career to Citroen as a mark, didn't he? You know, very mm. much the, the, the Mark's prodigy um, and, and, you know, his entire career, apart from that uh, spell with a Corolla WRC. Yeah, I spotted that. Was that a bet? Do you think that was a bet he lost? Valiance, but yes, you know, I mean, it's it's you know, before his his return, it was impossible to see think of him anything other than a a double Chevron car, wasn't it? And uh, Mm. I suspect some loyalty probably probably uh, was part of that decision as well. I guess he's the ultimate example of this kind of French career ladder that they've done so well over the last you know couple of decades. You know, and breeding these guys on tarmac, and he came up in the sixteen super sixteen hundred Saxo and whatnot uh, before graduating to the works team. Mm. And as he got better, I'm sure there were engineers around him who got better as well, and they all moved up in the programme together, um, you know, including Daniel Elena, his co-driver, who was there in the early days, of, I guess. And so they all sort of moved up in that junior team, and then they moved on to the World Rally Championship team. 
um, and the rest is quite literally rallying history. Um, and I suppose the risk wasn't quite so great when you knew that you'd got Loeb and you could see his potential and you've got people around him that he got on with, that they uh, understood him, he understood them, they understood him. And uh, to run that programme, it was just, it was at some point, it was going to be a natural step to take that group and move them all up and get them involved in the very first World Rally Championship campaign. And that Zara, actually, when I think about the Zara, that was and is still the best looking Citroen World Rally car when it was on tarmac. How many seasons did they do the Zara? The Zara was a student until 2003. What else came after the Zara? Was it a C4 in 2004, 2005? Never I mean, liked the look of that. But no. the Zara on tarmac, that was a beautiful car. That looked the business. For sure. And before Citroen could be ready for, for the likes of Loeb, they arrived in 98 with the Zara kit car ably piloted by Bogalski and Puras, and they got a WRC debut result of fifth in Catalonia. And this is really very much the origins now of this team and care that gave us this low success. Um, you know, the kid car had been in development in 97 to 98. And then the, the, the ire of the other teams was really starting to become apparent at this stage, wasn't it, Jamie? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it become but by ninety eight, it become fairly impossible to ignore the pace of these cars. Um, mm. uh, and you say guys like everyone forgets Hayes Purus, uh, and I don't know why because he's got the best name of any rally driver in the world, <laughs> Pure Jesus. Um, uh, and then, as, as as I'm sure we'll get to, you know, the idea that Citroen uh, in the background of the Zara kit car were fermenting the um, the Zara T4 program, which was mm. the all wheel drive. Um, almost test bed for what would become the Zara WRC, although of course there are a lot of differences um, and that's the car that completely wiped the floor with the French National Championship in 2000 with Bogolski. Um but before that of course we've got the, the apex of, of the kit car era at 1999 um, when the F2 guys really did start you know, throwing egg on the faces of, of the WRC chaps Mm. Yeah, because in this stage, no, Bogansky is going to win two events in 99 in the Zara Kit Care. No, the sun is starting to set, but this is really the peak. And it's, it's funny that when we look back, because uh, I don't know, I had this kind of, you know, Jamie, we talked about this, the, the Trio 6 is everyone's best remembered winning, or, you know, as the winningest or the best Kit Care. But John's arrived to, to kill that notion. Um, but the, the Zara is, <laughs> no, no, of course. No, 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 I don't want to kill any notions. <laughs> but the, the Zara is the only one to actually have won. A WRC event, of course, isn't it? Yes, although uh, although the Maxi got very close. Um, yes. Delacour was was in the uh, the running for uh, outright victory on the Tour de Course until the final day of nineteen ninety eight, uh, when it uh, pissed it down uh, on a on a Sunday morning stage, and that allowed Colin uh, to 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 sneak into the lead. Um, and I often wonder whether that had, you know if if that would have happened then, would that have have moved the whole sort of timetable of these things onward. You know, would that yeah. have spelt the demise of, of the yeah. F2 Maxi at WRC level earlier? It's hard to know. Um, but yeah, certainly well, it seems really, wrong that the, the 306 doesn't have, have a victory to its name. Yeah, it would have helped it, wouldn't it? I mean, that would have been a great credit to its name and uh, it would be something they couldn't ignore. Um, it would have been... They're, they're taking it away. From the, some of the attention would have been drawn away from Citroen winning in that 
Zara kit car and to win two events here just thinking about this you know one you can always say that's a fluke whatever that is in French but to win two well that's a run of form isn't it you've gone out and you've repeated it again albeit on another um, asphalt round but at that point you can build a case that you've got it so had Peugeot then won in that strange car the numbers of which I've forgotten um, yeah. then uh, you know they could have I mean may maybe they would have had a case as well and and that whole battle between the two brands at PSA would have started even earlier but by then I mean as soon as they won as soon as Citroen won in that kit car they must have thought right now we have to start planning now we've got to get the budgets involved and we've got to go you know up to the top and tell people that we can take on these Japanese brands I mean I'm thinking when you were talking about um you said it was a the, the kit car was almost like a, a test bed for what was going to come later on. Well, VW, when they entered the championship in whatever it was, 2012, 2013, something like 13, that. 13, yeah. Uh, in 2012, or 20, in 2012, they did, I think, every stage of every rally after the event with the car to see how it performed. Um, so rather than doing that, well, you, they, had, they had a Skoda that they possibly could have, you know, worked as well. But um, you've got to prepare, haven't you? You can't just get it out the box and run it and hope it'll do well. So um, the French had tested it well. They'd had established drivers who had done really well at a national level who had done well in it. It had won. Everything's there ready to go, isn't it? And all that is part, all that is thanks to the theory and the philosophy of a kit car. In fact, I'll tell you what, let's go even further than that. Sebastian <laughs> Loeb would not be the multi-zillionaire that he is now if it had not been for a kit car. There you go. He owes it all to a kit car. <laughs> Oof, that's, 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 uh, that's, that's dangerous. Um, I think part of the reason that it so got up the nose of uh, the, the Subarus and the Mitsubishis of this world at the time was because Bogalski's success in 99 was consecutive. He won two rounds, France and Spain, on the bounce, separated by a handful of weeks. Um, and as John said, that, that, that you know, proved any, beyond doubt that this wasn't a fluke. Uh, mm. But it also served to, to sort of really... Uh, I think align the forces against the idea of, of continued F2 maxi success. You know, now there's no, it's no coincidence that 99 is the last year that this was able to happen. Mm. You know, maxis got heavier and were effectively uh, uh, legislated out of competitiveness soon after. Yeah. And somewhere there's a project manager on the 306 who's still weeping at the fact that they didn't, they didn't pick his project. They didn't pick his car and his team. They went with that Zara thing. Um, and, <laughs> And he, he never heard. I wonder who it might have been. Well, the two were actually very closely related in terms of Zara and, and 306 in terms of chassis, but they did have quite a few differences. I, I, you know, Killian, can you remember? I mean, I think suspension was quite different between the two. Suspension was quite different. Uh, I think they ran a different gearbox and front mm. differential as well. I'm going to have to dive a bit deeper. And I'm afraid mm. I, I, I haven't got those notes to hand, but uh, I think there was a different gearbox. Uh, both shells were prepared by Matter, I reckon. Matter, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always Matter. It, it just, they just <laughs> built everything uh, at one point. Um, and, and, of course, the Zara didn't have that polished uh, wooden gear knob that the 306 had. <laughs> but if i mean if you go back to those days then you're going to spread your bets aren't you you're going to put that technology in the peugeot and in the 306 and you're going to try that technology in the zara you're not going to have the same or maybe it's different philosophies different approach to test and get more working out which is the best one um and then this one is the one that wins and all of this doesn't 
or it's it's going to be you know survival of the fittest whichever one wins first proves to us it's good enough to take into the world championship that's the one we that we go with um but eventually eventually we get to a point now that theory falls down because you've then got you know you've got both of them competing side by side at which point somebody at psa must have said it must have been a recession there somewhere did we have a global shutdown somewhere in about 2000 and when did they go when was that strange marcus gronholm large coupe thing 2004 cc i wasn't gonna say it that was with four years uh 2005 was that or 2004 what happened there what were peugeot thinking at that point that they would and that can't have been a corrado prevera the team manager decision he couldn't have just chomped on that cigar and said next year's guys we get rid of this car we go with this one peugeot this is such a fantastic way to sell cars we're going to take this old dog we've developed over here and we're going to give you that when everything that they'd done before had been the other way around, the thing that these cars had actually earned their chance to be in the championship from very early days as kits, then they get in to become homologated World Rally Championship cars, and then they go on from there. And then suddenly, you know, let's have this, yeah, just wheeling that really weird-looking, strange, mm. elongated thing. That's what, it, what on earth is that? Oh, you've only built it that long just so that Marcus Gronholm can get in it. Oh, I see, because he's six foot five. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it would let Stones uh, enter into the co-driver uh, <laughs> on, in unfortunate places. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, to be fair, it's, it's a good thing that car was homologated purely for that. I mean, it's the it's up there with the best bit of WRC TV in the world, to be honest. Hand signals. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in in 99 you know john you said earlier that all these teams were you know were starting to really give out about this like mccray said in the service park in corsica in 99 why should there be a car that comes along and beats what's supposedly the top formula well richard Byrne said it was a bit ridiculous yeah a bit ridiculous and so maybe those two guys you know uh really started to make the fia and the promoter yeah. lean a bit heavier on this in a way, that wasn't that the perfect year because Colin had just moved on to Ford. Richard had just taken his place at Subaru. Mm. Um, there's this really lanky guy from Sky News going out and passenger rides thinking, yeah, this is really cool. I want to get involved with these guys. But that's the moment, you know, just as the guy, as they, as those two change, maybe, I, mean, I, can't, I can't be deliberate, but an opportunity was created into which, you know, you could arrive. Um, and, you know, Colin, well, he'd had... Uh, 95, 96, 97, 98, four, four great years since the World Championship. Uh, Ford had then just opened the, um, you know, the Bank of England and said, Colin, help yourself. Um, and he'd gone off and bought all his toys. He moved on to Ford and then made that great advert. And so suddenly um, here is this thing from France, this, you know, a Citroen. What's a, I mean, a Citroen? In, what was a Citroen in Britain? Had Citroen got any kind of, you know, sexy row car going on in the late 90s in Britain? No, we were all driving around in Impressors, you know, with lovely exhaust notes, or we were driving around in Evos, and uh, we were in debt to the bank for thousands of pounds, all the petrol we were putting in the things. The whole Japanese thing had taken over, the Japanese, the grey import. We all wanted the four-wheel drive thing. We didn't have a Citroen, and yet here you were with Citroen and Bogalski and Jesus Puras showing where the future was. 
and and we didn't pick up on it. Yeah, and this is it because you can now at the you know at, at two thousand onwards, you can see the, the Japanese dominance in the WRC starting to falter. You know, look, Subaru will still win, you know, a couple more championships or the drivers would, uh, and manufacturer championships. But it was becoming a bit more sparse now, wasn't it? And then, of course, we went on to full French domination hmm. from there on. And by two thousand and three, they were ready. They won the manufacturers in 2003 and Petasolvo won his championship. But the theory was the Citroen had said to said, don't worry about the drivers championship, old son. You'll win that one next year because quite, quite honestly, we're sitting on the future. All of that stuff over there, that's the past. Stick with us, stick with Citroen and we'll do fantastic things together. And they did. And the, the, I, I imagine often that that 2003 championship was just relinquished to, uh, you know, to Pet. It could quite easily have been another low championship, yeah. but it wasn't. I mean, I think part of the reason that Citroen were able to be so uh, successful from the off was because of the, the T4 Zara. You know, it was the, the I mean, it was quite a... Uh, a bit of skullduggery, if you ask me, to be able to develop an all-wheel drive rally car. And I suppose that was just them willing to spend the money, but, you know, not for WRC success, just for the French National Championship. Mm. And although it wasn't a world rally car, it certainly had all the attributes. And it meant that, mm. you know, come 2001 onwards, they really were able to start off in a deeply competitive uh, position, which probably mattered more to Citroën than Peugeot, given... Prior to this, Citroen's history with in, in rallying was was a bit patchy. I mean, the the, the, the last top tier car before the Zara WRC is a BX4TC, the Group B one, which is the the worst Group B car of them all. Uh, but you love it. Oh, of course, you know. But then For I'm that very reason, I'm an automotive pervert. So my my. <laughs> Did its, did its headlights conform with the regulations? That's that's the other one that I was thinking about. It's sixty six and. Um, when they threw out the mini because the, the headlights, yeah. the headlights, is they are all wrong. <laughs> Wasn't it a Citroen DS that won that year? Something like that. Actually, it was, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go that far back, there are all kinds of quirky results, and there's Beatles winning the Safari and stuff like that. You know, it all gets a bit wild. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, and I guess this kind of brings us neatly with Seb being the common the thread through to the. Mm partially for the demise of the the tarmac specialist because Seb Lowe proved that it was no longer okay or acceptable for a a works rally driver to be to, to have a car to expect to earn a contract purely based off of his ability to get a podium twice or three times a year you know you had to be able mm. to expect to be able to do it week in week out on any surface mm. um yeah so and we he, got the super subs instead yes who used to I mean, I can remember having a joke with the guys on Channel 4 saying, let's go down to the bookies and get some money on now on this guy, Marcus Gronholm, that they haven't heard of winning in, I don't know, where the first gravel run was in 2002. Let's say it was Cyprus or something. And the bookies saying, looking to each other and saying, well, I've just looked at this book written by Martin Holmes, and it says this kid, Gilles Panizzi, has been doing very well on asphalt. So... Uh, I think I've never heard this bloke Gronholm, so let's give this idiot some long odds on Gronholm and short odds on Panizzi, because as it looked, Panizzi was doing so well because he was winning so much on tarmac, uh, and nobody heard of Gronholm because it just hadn't been the gravel rounds that uh, he would then dominate and win. Um, and they, if the, hit, the Panizzi brothers used to annoy me um, because... <clears throat> 
they, they ruined my arrival in this sport. Here I am, gone to Channel 4, begged them to give me the gig. I get the gig. We go on long distance rallies. I turn left on all these big planes and somebody hands me a glass of champagne and, and rallying is now making money and it's glamorous. It's fantastic. And then uh, I'm going to go and I'm going to go watch Colin and um, uh, Richard win all these rounds of the World Championship. Dream job. Thank you very much. Just hand me the big Cuban now. And it never, you go to places like, you know, Corsica or we go to San Remo or we go to these time around Catalonia. And then the Panizzi brothers would turn up, you know, and Panizzi would win. And it was a dreadful interview. One of the great clips of one year, I think it was 2002, was him trying to describe a bird coming in through the air duct and landing in the car. And he hadn't got the word in English for the word bird. And we just turned him into, you know, an idiot of the coverage. Here's this really strange French bloke who, you know, apparently cheats as well by cycling the stages with a wig on. Um, and he doesn't know the word in English for bird. What a fool. Huh. Oh, well, yeah, what a, but he was good in that car on tarmac and was untouchable as well. Well, yeah, in, 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 uh, from 2000 to 2003, uh, Panizzi won nine WRC events, all on tarmac. So three San Remo, two Tour de Cars. And two in Catalonia, and they were his only WRC victories. Mm. All on he was, um, he was uh, leading the Monty in that Impreza in 2000 as well, wasn't he? I believe no, before he crashed out on the final day, there was definitely when he had a, a, a private Impreza WRC, um, and, and showed that it wasn't just all front wheel drive. How do you think he'd get on with Croatia or? Well, Japan this year is going to be on tarmac. I'm just thinking um, that strange event that very glad we were very glad finished off the season at Monza. I wonder how he would have done there if we could get him back, get a vintage Gilles Panizzi and his brother back to compete on these rounds now and see how they would deal with that sort of tarmac. It's just a crazy thought that somebody else gets the next round of drinks in I'm just thinking you know I'll, I'll fill the conversation before he gets back to the table <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it'd be good to see I mean Benizzi doesn't seem to do much anymore Delacorce still turns up to mm. Monte yeah. Carlo kind of religiously enough doesn't he in, in, in various yeah, bits of equipment mm. you know with that co-driver he describes as Corsica's fastest sheep farmer um, whose his name I can never remember and I've met him a few times in Monte Carlo um a great character that I tried to recreate in one of those stories that I wrote and put into those World Rally Championship books, which I must send to you, of course. Uh, <laughs> nice still book. available on eBay. Come on, <laughs> yeah. you, you knew I was going to raise it. Yeah, you get the plugs <laughs> in. Sooner or later, those books were coming up. Seamless. Yeah. Pl- plug because... away. We'll insert some more at the start and the, at the end. If you want, we'll, we'll record a separate ones lately to drop in at the start and the end <laughs> of the episode. Uh, links in description. <laughs> He was fascinating because um, I wish I could remember what his name was, but he was a shepherd from Corsica and Delacour had him in the recent Monte Carlos when he would turn up sponsored by Romania. And I think he got a car off. I can't remember what he was driving recently. Something like an Alpine. 16, 17. What was he in? And that, and, uh, Delacour has drove an Alpine A110 RGT yeah. the last couple of years in, uh, in Monte. He, no, he does. He does the recce in a port. Well, he did a recce this year in a Porsche 911 Targa, uh, new one. Uh, didn't crash this. At least I don't know if it was borrowed or not. But he didn't. Yeah, he, he only crashes F40. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 
But isn't, isn't that great? I mean, um, what, who would you rather be? Maybe this is a stupid question. Francois Delacour, you can turn up at, you know, um, Tuttle, Porsche, whoever, and say, give me a car for the recce. Um, me and my mate, we just fancy doing the recce around Monte Carlo and having a great, great week, a great week, a bit of a blast, a bit of crack, have a few drinks and remember the old times. Or do you want to be Seb Loeb and you're going to get into you know, one of these Fords? And we all expect you to win, Seb, because you're a nine times champion. You've got all these events and you've done all these great things. Um, meanwhile, Delacour and his co-driver, whose name I can't remember, they're just, you know, they're just rapping and riffing in the car as they do the, the recce around Monte Carlo. <laughs> um, and I suppose the super sub era that's a very very short one effectively 2001 to 2003 because from 2004 the FIA uh, mandated the, the closed the idea of having a third WRC car uh, as a sop to, to rising costs uh, and it meant we sort of uh, we saw less of guys like uh, Stefan Sarazin, who's yeah. the one that always sticks in my mind. Yeah, he has a, a one-time F1 dalliance. Um, yeah, he has an interesting I, career. A lot of uh, circuit racing, Le Mans, and GT racing. Yeah, he mm -hmm. raced in Formula One with Minardi. Minardi was. I was going to yeah. say Tyrrell, but yes, no, absolutely. What mm. a guy! I remember him in. Was it, was, he did uh, superb stuff uh, in Impreza WRCs and the Tour de Course. He's um, probably like the last of the super subs, really. Or we're probably skipping, but um, because who, who he, the he, others? I mean, who who would have started it? Who was the first super sub? Do you think? Well, I guess I was going to say to you, put that one to you, John. You were there at the time, kind of 01 to 03, when these guys, these ex Tarmac Masters, well, they're still Tarmac Masters, but they were, they were now being drafted in for part time drives, but in the WRC cars mm. rather than specialist equipment. What was the kind of the mood back then? Like, I mean, like Panizzi and Delacour were doing full seasons, admittedly, but you've got the likes of uh, Jean Joseph. Yes. Would he be one? Simon Jean-Joseph, absolutely. Uh, I think still does gravel notes for Seb. No, not Seb Ogier. He's still involved somewhere in the in the shadowy backgrounds, working with someone. And I can't remember who it is. It might be. It might be Seb Ogier. Um, they were well. You know, in in TV, you have a very short space of time to work out who the people are that count who the people are that you really ought to be talking about and who the people are that uh, the audience back home are interested in. And it was not Simon Jean-Joseph or Philippe Bogalski. John, those are these, these strange Frenchmen that turn up for tarmac rounds. Don't worry about them. They won't be there in, you know, Kenya, Finland, New Zealand, Australia. And they weren't. But they were still doing an important job and still racking up points for the manufacturer, which in France, almost more than anywhere else, was the most important thing. Mm -hmm. It was getting the manufacturer's championship, driver's championship, second of secondary importance. Whereas I think the guys at ProDrive and possibly Malcolm at Ford realised that the real eyeballs were, were on the personality. We were into the people that were doing it as much as we were into the brand of the car and the kind of car that was doing it, which is why, you know, they took Colin McRae and turned him into, well, the most popular computer game ever, to the point where the Japanese thought he was Lara Croft and he was an invention. Uh, he didn't really yeah. exist. Um, yeah. And somebody had dreamt him up on a, on a computer game. So they went with the personality. Perhaps that's where Richard Burns failed. But... Um, 
they go for the person, whereas the French are going for the manufacturer. So it's all about the car and it's all about the car brand more than it is about the driver himself. I'm just thinking about how, so we get, we never hear of Philip Bogalski after about, what, 2002, something like that. We never hear of his, his appearance after 2001, you know, so he's gone. The Panizzi brothers are some sort of strange walk-on cameo role that we turn into fools and idiots on the Channel 4 coverage, and, you know, they're good, <coughs> going, they're good for going to the advertising break just before we get to the news. Um, so all these guys are going... And Seb Loeb is taking over. And by when did Mitsubishi, he, Mitsubishi pulled out and then Subaru pulled out. And I remember at that point working at Sky News and it made a story. They called me into the studio to talk about how um, Subaru had pulled out of the World Rally Championship. I remember using the phrase, this is like Noddy leaving Toy Town. This is, yeah. this is incredible. Everything that that company has ever achieved has come through the World Rally Championship. The only reason we know about them is because they were cool rally cars in blue with gold wheels. Um, <clears throat> so by that point, I reckon all these other brands are thinking, that guy Loeb, that Citroen car, be it the Zara, the C4, whatever, they're, they're unbeatable. We don't want to be there. We can't win. They're too dominant. Whatever we try, we can't get involved. Um, and just championship after championship after championship goes his, goes their way. Malcolm gets involved and almost beats them when he hires uh, Marcus Gronholm in 2006, gets very close. I think Gronholm won Monte Carlo in 2006, if I remember, in a, in a Ford. So, you know, there's this little sort of wave. There's a few big punches thrown back at Citroen, but then they still go on and there's still the dominant brand in the World Rally Championship. And to take it back to kit cars, and it all started, you know, seven, eight years before with this little project around kit car. I think, absolutely. And I think Loeb is obviously a once-in-a-generation talent, if not once-in-a-century talent. But he was also flattered in as much as his skills were, and he'd been birthed, on he'd, he'd learnt his skills in the new breed of world rally cars with fully active transmissions and the the older guard the the McCrae's, yeah. uh, the Orioles and even the Delicos of this world who'd who'd cut their teeth in Group A cars yes a very much more manhandling and rough set of skills to get the most out of yeah so yeah. often struggled to adjust to the super smooth silky style needed to to get the yeah. most and, and Seb of course you know had the stuff because he's basically a god but you know was was better than that the most. Mm. And he was, you're saying he was a one in a generation. It was very strange that another one came along. They were both in the same team. Mm. They were both called Seb. They were both French and they didn't get on to the point where, you know, one had to leave and start up with this strange German rally team. Well, there's, <laughs> there's something new. Uh, how did that happen? Um, and, you know, they take over and they become the dominant force. Uh, but you're right about Seb Lowe being, I think, a kind of a man of the people. The favourite photograph of him is him showing off his six-pack at the age of, you know, 40 uh, with a cigarette and a beer on because that, that's Seb Loeb. You'd never see Seb Ogier doing that, who has stellar talents of his own, but is different to Seb Loeb, even though they've got the same name. They're two completely different sorts of guys and personalities. Um, and they probably clashed at Citroen. And Loeb probably thought, 
this is just the irony of ironies. Not only is this guy good, but he's in my team. I've got to snuff him out, even though he's French and he's got the same chuffing name as me. Um, and so Seb Ogier has to move because, you know, the team just ain't big enough for the both of us. Um, <clears throat> wait, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> who, who would you say would you, was your favourite of, of, of all the, the tarmac aces specialists throughout the years? Oh, no, well, Herbert, it was the Herbert brothers, Panizzi brothers. The Panizzi brothers were great entertainment, um, even though they were an annoyance because they were getting in the way of, you know, Richard, who ideally wanted to see win and never did in 2002, 2003. Um, you know, Colin, again, let's see, let's, let's see the legend. Oh, he's by the 2003, he's driving in a in a Citroen and it's not quite the way it should be. They told me he was the coolest, best driver on the planet, most talented driver of our generation, but he doesn't seem able to win in this French car. So I think the, the Panizzi brothers were the most entertaining because you've got to remember, let's go back to the beginning of the interview. I don't know what a differential is. So, you know, I don't know what a slip diff is, do I? So if I don't know what a diff is, I don't know what a slip diff is or any other kind of diff. So it's, I'm looking for, you know, the swagger and the skill and I'm looking for, a little bit of shelf, a little bit of nonsense, a little bit of personality. It kind of breaks out from all the Finns who don't want to talk about too much. Um, and the Panizzi brothers, in their own sweet way, a little bit of entertainment. So I picked them. Bogalski, I never really got to know. Jesus Puris, likewise, didn't get to know him. Stefan Zarazan, we had a mutual friend in actual fact, but that was just coming at the point when I was moving out and going back to Sky News. So I didn't really get to see him. Francois Delacour was, he was good entertainment. He was, he was a good driver. He knew what he was doing. But by then, I think he was, you know, verging on, on the, he was on the verge of madness. Um, and, you know, the ego was taking over. I am Francois Delacour, why will you not give me a drive? Um, and I don't think Peugeot wanted him around anymore. So he had to go off into the shadows. So I'll go, um, I'll say Panizzi. I'll say Panizzi. It's a good shout. I think a lot of people will, will be in agreement with that one. And, and poor old Panizzi was, you know, with another team, another winning, winning, winning team that was kind of scared off. Perhaps, like, maybe not scared off, you know, but to, to see Subaru and Mitsubishi both disappear around a similar time <clears> at the height of this French dominance, as you say, it can't be not completely unrelated, I guess, but Panizzi had that ill-fated Lancer WRC 05 mm. drive, uh, although he did get its best result of, of the car with a third and Monty, uh, suitably for, for a man of his skills and talents. And then Mitsubishi were also no more after only half a season. Mm. The best thing about Gio Panizzi is that in his early 90s, in, in his youth, he looked like Pat Sharp from Funhouse. So that, that makes him the best. That's what he looked like. Pat Sharp from Funhouse. He's <laughs> <laughs> another another mutual friend of mine. I'm, I, I never, I've never, I've never ever thought of that, but you're absolutely right. And um, he also had a spectacularly beautiful wife with dark hair and uh, brown eyes. I think it was. She was ever so slightly taller than he was. And it, it did make you wonder, you know. You think, hey, Gilles, you've done well there. Man, you've done well. We don't know who you are. You're a bit of a lunatic. You don't know the word for bird in English, but you. <laughs> Ah, well done, very good. <laughs> we definitely scuppered any hope of Panizzi coming on the podcast in this episode. 
hey, he might be a big funhouse aficionado. Who wouldn't like? I don't that? even get that reference, so I don't. <laughs> oh, I don't. Do I don't understand that one. I don't get that one. I'm afraid. Oh, oh yeah, funhouse was a that was probably age. a very British thing. You missed it. Fair enough. Well, yeah, I think that probably brings us through that pretty pretty neatly isn't it i guess you know Loeb really the one who kiboshed the whole the whole notion uh and, and obviously changed rallying completely as well in, in other ways but it's kind of the more professional athlete kind of vibe but really put the point nail in the, the coffin of this french tarmac master because he was just a master of all which is what you had to be able to do if you wanted to be considered a champion you had to win on every surface mm-hmm. um you know you got to do ice you've got to do got to do tarmac uh in many ways i think if you slipped another tarmac round into the championship i'm trying to think how many there are now it might be it might swing the balance again but you'd have to be you have to win on tarmac and you'd have to win on gravel back in the day when i think that you know the, the techniques between the two were entirely different whereas now to a greater extent, you just floor that right foot and let the aerodynamics take over um, with all that power and that strange hybrid thing that, again, is in the same reference book as differentials. I haven't picked it up, <laughs> I haven't read it, and I don't know what it does. <laughs> well, we'll see how Rally Japan goes this year. That should be an interesting one to watch. Well, well I mean, what a, we should be back there. Should have been back there. Mm. Should, you know, New Zealand, we finally got back to as well. Um, and... Well, who knows? Maybe that'll light things up. There was talk of Subaru coming back. Uh, that was four years ago. Somebody fairly high up who should know mentioned that they were talking to Subaru, but they left because I think the choice was we either uh, create a diesel engine for our cars or we stay in the World Rally Championship. And they decided a diesel engine was going to be the thing that they were going to do. Oh, that was a bad horse to back. Can yeah. You now? <laughs> Fuel of the devil, I keep. Well, with the, with the downfall of STI as a brand, which no longer exists, I think any hope of, of Subaru returning is probably mm. completely in the bin. But um, yeah, you brought up New Zealand, John, I think before we let you go, it's another one we're back to, which I think everyone's very excited. Mm. Uh, what are your thoughts on New Zealand and and uh, any any predictions? Well, being a man of that age now, I was thinking to myself, do I do 48 hours of pain getting there, 48 hours of pain recovering from the jet lag, do the gig and then repeat the dose on the way home? Or um, do I just do it remotely uh, from the UK, which is what I'm going to do. But that choice was made for me because I decided this time I wanted to be, uh, I want to do all the recorded highlights. So I shall be covering New Zealand um, from what they commonly call the man cave at home. (laughs) Um, It's proper speed, they're proper roads. It is a combination of New Zealand and Finland. It's worth going to, it's worth taking the pain. Uh, I drove a couple of them in a hire car and then got out the insurance policy and read the bit that said under no circumstances take this car on a rally stage even after the rally because your insurance <laughs> policy will be null and void. Only I read that afterwards when the thing was covered in dust. But the sensation of going from, you know, inside to outside of, of the, the corner, you know, the camber is incredible. It's, and it's great when they get it right on the camera and it's an incredible experience. I think I did it at about 40 kilometers an hour. They'll do it at about 140 kilometers an hour. Um, and it's a special place. You know, they said it's great views, but every round of the championship now with the cameras and the helicopter, 
Westcam gives you great views. Um, and I have, I looked at where Seb Ogier was in the road order and I thought, yeah, no wonder you want to have a go <laughs> because <laughs> you're doing what Chris Meek used to do back in that year of the uh, 2016 when he popped in, mm -hmm. in uh, the Good DS, morning. last year, the DS3, just sort of have a look at the road where he was in the championship and think, yep, that's the sweet spot for sweet spot for Mexico. And that's the sweet spot for Portugal. I'll have, a, I'll have an entry there. Thank you very much. Oh, I won. I, I think Seb knows he's going to do well. And the way the whole Toyota campaign has fallen to bits in the last three rounds, I think Yari, Matty and Toyota are glad to get him back um, because he is, to my mind, the best driver not the one with the best memory, which is what the championship kind of looked like just before COVID. If you could remember the stages, you'd be the best guy on the stages. Now we've got so many new events coming in. New Zealand not being quite new, but being different and not too many people have been there, especially in these cars. Seb is the best equipped to deal with that lack of knowledge. With his road order, he would do spectacularly well. And now I've said that, uh, Kalarov and Pera will win from first on the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, and Ogier, as is to believe, has never won in New Zealand because, of no. course, it hasn't been featuring on the championship that much lately, which still sounds mad that Ogier can go to an event that he hasn't actually won, mm. which is a, a wild Argentina's concept. another one. He's never done Argentina. I, we really The word is Mexico is coming back next year for March. Um, but well, I think we need Argentina back just because it's it's a crazy oh, distance condo. to go. It's inc an incredible place to go. It's a different vibe and environment. And it's just, it's if if it wasn't, if it didn't exist, you wouldn't invent it. It's one of those. But for popular appeal, it is the best. People turn out in their hundreds of thousands. You probably won't find that in New Zealand. But you should do because the whole spectacle of driving on those roads is is terrific, and I think it's it's one you've got to have. You got to you know win New Zealand and then quit. But apparently he's bored and he's he's had a go at you know going round and round on tracks and doesn't like it. And I think um, Mrs. OJ doesn't want him at home anymore, which is what, which is what Mrs. Gronholm said to Marcus and what Mrs. McRae said to Colin. He said, what are, you, are you still lying on that sofa? Will you just get up and do something, please? And eventually they pick up the phone and say, I'd love to come back. Um, and I think Toyota needs Seb Ogier for these last three. Like they've never needed anybody before. It's just having been having got such a fantastic lead. It's, it looks as if it's, it's, you know, crumbling and it's giving way. So he's coming back just at the right time. We wouldn't have said at the start of the season that Hyundai would have gotten uh, the three no. on the bounce. Uh, fair play to them, given the the kind of internal politics or whatever that are going on there, which are probably yeah. a subject for another day. Um, and that's the most current events that we'll ever discuss on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the only topical topical uh, current events chat we'll ever do, or the most the closest to it. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about New Zealand in 1950. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there, is there EWRC results for New Zealand 1950-something? Uh, <laughs> Austin Cambridge slowly being flung around. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not quite as romantic, is it? No. <laughs> I John. remember watching an interview with Phil Short on how to drive a rally car, and that was in New Zealand, and that was cutting-edge stuff. <laughs> so I, I think it was Phil Short. It was a great mm -hmm. program, and I found it in a museum 
in New Zealand in Wellington when I was <laughs> on the way to the pub. We popped in and they had these uh, TV histories. And there, I think it was Phil Short. And they had a West Cam helicopter telling you how to drive a two-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive uh, Ford Escort and wind in New Zealand. We'll do that one next time. <laughs> That sounds like a good idea to me. John, thank you so, so much for coming on. You've been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for putting up with me. My lack of knowledge, my complete lack of an understanding, but just for my own self-respect, when I said, uh, you know, the story about I didn't know what a differential was, I was just kidding you along. Because I know what a differential is, for goodness sake. It's been a blast. Thank you for asking. Thank you very much, John. Really, really appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Really appreciate it. We'll certainly talk again soon. And uh, do you want to get another plug in before you go? <laughs> plug that book quick I'd love to plug that book there's still one or two copies available uh, and it's no, it's it, what the theory was we're under COVID I can't go I can't travel so I will recreate as a fiction everything that I've seen before and I'll really make it dirty there'll be deaths in it there'll be drugs in it there'll be all sorts of shenanigans which I was convinced were, go, were going on anyway but weren't because the sport is very clean and it's not very naughty. And I'll turn it into some um, stories that I'll put on Kindle. And then a mate of mine says, you might as well publish them, self-publish them and sell them on. So I've created my entire parallel universe from the golden age that I call it, which for me, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry, goes from 97 to 2017. That for me is where the golden age of rallying is. And the hero's car is blue. It has got gold wheels and there is a Frenchman in there but he does get beaten. Uh, the first book is called Breaking Point. See what I did there. Second book is called Heat Soak because it ends in Greece. See what I did there. And um, there are three stories in each book. And um, I think if you can find me on eBay, they're about a five or a go now. And I'll, I'll gladly sign one and post them off to you. Thank you very Thank much. You Thanks very much. John, thanks for joining us. Jamie, thanks for doing a, a cracking job as always. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Rally DNA. <laughs>